Hey there, I'm Evan DeWald and I'm joined by Tara Lindsley and this is Unpacked. We're unpacking life as messy people. So here, we do the things that we do the best. We tell stories and we share life with each other. Sometimes life gets big and messy and full of failure and vulnerable moments, but we believe that sharing those things together helps us all to grow. So have a listen. Make sure to like and subscribe. This week on Unpacked, we're chatting with Patty Sproul. Yeah, we loved it. Super fun. She uh, is just the most amazing lady. I had a chance to meet her like a decade ago um, when she was working actually in Chestermere Community Services and trying to trying to start so many things in a really young community. And uh, what I love most about her is as you start to look at her like long history, it is just full of advocating for young people and in particular young people that are are at risk. Yeah, she definitely has a heart for that. It comes out in her story. She shares about her life and perspective as an Indigenous person, Yeah, which was something that I didn't actually know about her. She um, runs her own company right now. She does consulting, but she's a former school board trustee. She's the executive director with Synergy and, like you said, an advocate in our community. And then we also share office space with her, you know, not in the pandemic. Yeah, not in the <laughs> pandemic, but we do. We've been gifted to get to be in close quarters with her and her team uh, where she's working. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. This is a mover shaker kind of a lady mm-hmm. that has just learned how to figure out how to, to get stuff done. And uh, I think that's one of the things I most love about her is that she loves people and she gets stuff done. Yeah. And so. she'll challenge you for it too. Uh, yes, she will. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's actually really inspiring as like a young woman um, working in a field and nonprofit. It was really awesome to hear her story and have her give some advice too. Yeah. Well, and this is one of those observations, like even before we jump into the conversation, most of what I see in the work of social development in communities is done by women hmm. and really powerful women. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the things that I love most about her. And we've gotten to know some of her family and some of her kids. It's, it's like this is a this is a lady who has accomplished a great deal in her life and managed to maintain her integrity and even her sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which has been fun. So. Yeah. Hey, we're glad that you decided to join us. We'd love for you to follow us on Spotify or iTunes uh, or wherever you like to listen and give us a comment every once in a while. For sure, it would be cool too. Yeah. Enjoy. When Tara and I were putting together the list, I was like, we got to put Patty down because this is a woman who's not only has, a, I think, a pretty great story. You've also been involved in so much work with kids, activism work, caring for the community. Like there are so many, and you just named one just now that I didn't know about, right? That it's like, you have so many touch points on what has made this area a better place for people to live and a more aware place for people to live, whether it's kids or First Nations people or whatever it might be. Um, and so, so this is a little bit what we're hoping to kind of get from you is, you know, who is Patty? Tell us a little bit about your life and how this all started. You also have twins. You have like, so you got some of those kind of things that I think feel like that would be fairly busy. Um, <laughs> And yet you've managed to, to get so much done. And, and honestly, before I even asked the question, I, I had told Tara, I was like, Patty has a level of patience for governments and like the slowness oh, of how things I work. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> well, it seems like you do. You don't give up. So maybe it's, so it's either, maybe not yeah. patience, maybe stubborn is the right I'm word. a dog with a bone is what I am. <laughs> don't, Yeah. I just don't know when to give up is my problem. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a little bit about you. Like, where did you grow up? Tell us just a little bit about your your growing up. Like, what was little Patty like? (laughs) 
So, um, okay, let me tell you a little bit about what I, so I was giving that, that's probably the hardest question for me to answer without making some notes. Those seem like ancient memories to me. <laughs> but um, I was born and raised in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba, uh, up until the time I was about nine years old, and then my family moved to Calgary. So uh, the oldest of three siblings, I have a younger sister and a younger brother, my brother being the baby. And our parents worked really, really hard to, to provide for us. And that's something that I was, as far back as I can remember, acutely aware of how hard they had to work. And so that kind of pushed me to become really independent at a really early age um, to try and take some of the load off of them. And I didn't really know at the time why I was so driven, but that I know now that that's what that was. So I helped them a lot with my younger siblings from a very early age, allowed for them to go to work and not have to have to pay for childcare from the time I was about nine. And, and then I, as soon as I could, could uh, do odd jobs and babysitting and that sort of thing, I did, did that and paid for all of my own um, needs clothing and that kind of thing from from about the age 12 up and uh, so that my parents didn't have to to find that that those funds and um, that was really important to me they fought me on it but I really really was it was important to me to, to contribute in that way my dad was an interesting person he uh, I often say to people that he and I grew up together we had an interesting relationship and in he was more like an older sibling to me than he was a father in many ways, as I look back on it. In my early years, when I was young, my dad went out of his way to deliberately instill in me the importance of equality and of acceptance, which is really interesting because then once I entered my teenage years, I um, learned to my dismay that my father was actually a bigot. And so we had a lot of arguments throughout my adolescence and uh, young adult years because he'd raised me to be the opposite to what he was. And so we had mm -hmm. lots of arguments about, about social issues as I was growing up and about uh, what was happening in the 60s with a civil rights movement, even as a, a a young pre-adolescent and I couldn't make sense of that for the longest time but um, once I once I got older once I got into my adulthood I, I realized why and how um, how he did that and what what his purpose was not that he ever told me but that I understood from other other stories that were told around how he lived his life and how he'd had to live his life as a as a young person himself and so I realized that he deliberately uh, went against his own feelings and his own beliefs and his own biases because he knew they were wrong. And although he couldn't shake them, he didn't want me to carry those. He grew up as a, our family is Métis. Uh, he grew up as a very obviously Indigenous man physically, as was his father before him. They were raised to behave as settlers, to avoid residential schools and to avoid discrimination and to have as equal rights as they could possibly get. Although my grandfather didn't find the need to over, overdo it um, to prove that he was white, my father did for whatever reason. And I, I, I probably will never know that, but he went a step further and in his attempt to identify with the with the settlers that he hung out with to to appear as as equal as he could to them he would uh, he took on on uh, a lot of the uh, rhetoric that he heard and became you know just just went that extra step to prove that he was not of a different color different creed of a different race so and he, I think he, he was aware of that subconsciously. And so he, uh, and he knew it was wrong. That, that's the thing he knew. He knew it was wrong and inherently, but he just couldn't, he never could shake it. He got 
a little better as he got older, but never, never was able to shake it. So that was, that was a challenge. So would you say like internally he was feeling judged by, by others? And so he just overcompensated. Yeah, he definitely was. Both, both my grandfather and my father attended the same elementary school I did in Portage La Prairie. Typically what would happen is when Métis children got older, especially, especially boys, once they got to um, be a little bigger and a little stronger, um, the agents would come to the school and they would, they would remove them and take them to the, to the uh, residential school, which by the way, was six kilometers down the road from elementary mm. school. So it was, you could walk there. And so both of them actually were taken out of school at, at grade six. That was sort of the magical age. Uh, grade six was, as soon as they finished grade six, they were, uh, they were considered at high risk for um, being taken away. And Métis people were in Manitoba, especially, really feared by the government uh, because of the rebellions in the late 1800s. Uh, they were feared and they were loathed. And although they could often pass themselves off as settlers and find their way into the public school system and into um, work situations along with settlers and have those opportunities, which was a blessing for them. People, when they found them out, would be very angry that they had been duped, basically. And so they would often pay for that. So I don't know how much of that either of them experienced, but I suspect it was a lot. They never talked about it. Uh, I have a great uncle who did talk to me some about it after my grandfather died. And so that's how I began to learn about our family's history. And um, some of the things he went through, he was the youngest in my grandfather's family. And so uh, he was a little more open to talking about their experiences. So I, I think for me, that, that was, it was hard. It was challenging to, to, to live with that. But I, I realized as I was growing up that I, I actually felt much more fortunate than most, than not most kids, but a lot of kids. A lot of the kids that I saw around me had less than I did, had uh, greater challenges than I did. And I just always felt a natural affinity for those kids. I just always felt like I wanted to come alongside them and support them. And so it kind of just became written in my DNA yeah. that that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. So you come out of, out of high school and then did you, what did you do? Did you, did you do some education stuff right off the bat, like right away or? Yeah, I went to Mount Royal College. It was college then for a two-year program in what they called then police science. Police science is now criminology or, or whatever, whatever it's called in, in various schools. I did that. And then I went on to, um, to take education, a degree program in education with a specialization in special education. And so um, right, right from the beginning, I, I wanted to, always wanted to work with, uh, with kids that had special challenges and, and uh, special needs. I was really interested in police work, um, again, again, more from the youth point of view and the domestic violence point of view than anything. At that time, I wasn't able to get into police work because at that time there wasn't laser surgery and my eyes were really bad. So I couldn't pass the eye test. I looked for a different way to get involved in the system, as it were. No, yeah, well, and we're starting to see where you're... Um where your passion for str struggling kids is coming from, right? Because it's like that, that is most definitely one of the things, you know, I, I think I've known you for a decade now, about a decade. And we got to know each other when you were working at, at the city of Chester. And, and even then you had already started the yell group for, for teenagers. And, and, you know, we're, we're starting to think about some of the synergy things that you've kind of already made happen and, and are continuing to make happen. So it, it's an interesting thing, right? Because Tara and I have been talking about this quite a, a, quite a bit, like what drives a person, you know, and, and, and we were sometimes in the church, we talk about it like calling or whatever, but, but it's like some, some of the metaphor language is, is like this image of the North star, you know, that gives us our bearings and that that's how we, we structure our life and how we 
make choices in terms of what we want to do for occupation and all those kind of, and that's kind of a great way like that the North star gives you bearings and is drawing you towards something. But there's also another star, which is the Southern star. And, and the way that we've been kind of talking about that is like, what are the things that we aren't going to be? So in other words, you know, if, if the North star is in a positive way, drawing us towards something, then what is the, the Southern star? Then what is it pushing us away from? And, it, and so even, even when I talk to people about what they want to do for their life or what they want mm. to be about, sometimes it's actually helpful to find out what they, what they don't want to be about. Uh, absolutely. And you're, you're describing my father. He was my South star. My father also had a, a, an alcohol problem, a very serious alcohol problem. So I'm really, I, I, I drink it have have it one drink you know on occasions and he did a lot of good things for me helped me be who I am I would say too that it's like it's helpful to know the southern stars that are present in our lives right because I I would say some of those can be turned into positive things or we're making healthy choices about what we're not going to be and then sometimes we're literally running from it is such a fear-based motivation that it that it can be destructive and harmful. It doesn't sound like that's the case for you, obviously, but, but even as I talk to people, that's one of the things I often try to ask them is like, well, what is that you're not planning to be? So tell us, tell us a little bit of like, so you've got some kids, just give us a little bit of picture into your family and where does that fit into the timeline of where you were living too? Cause you had just finished off that you were, came back to Alberta. So I came back to Alberta and uh, from from the lower mainland where I worked in um, in an alternative schools for a couple of years out there uh, as a school counselor. Um, at that time, alternative schools were they were placed in community halls or wherever way far away from the school. They were very like, uh, yeah, they, they didn't want to see those kids. They didn't want to talk to them. They didn't want anything. The first one I was in was uh, all kids that had just come out of juvenile hall for doing whatever, um, violent crimes. I worked with a, there with a teacher who had been, who was a Vietnam vet and who suffered from a lot of, a lot of challenges post um, war and didn't show up most days. (laughs) And so I worked with these 12 boys um, on my own and was scared to death at first. And so had to become a really good actor around them and pretend that I was really confident when I wasn't. So I learned a lot there. I moved back to Alberta. I moved actually to Claire's home to work as a community youth worker. And I was there just for a year. That was my first introduction to kind of preventative social services. Uh, That's what it was called back then instead of family and community support service. It it changed its name. And then I had an opportunity. So I, I liked it. But I still had, I had such a strong yearning to work with, with kids that I saw the value in prevention, but I, I had a a strong yearning to work with the kids who were already affected and I needed to, to get back to that. I, I just missed that so much. And so I had an opportunity to open a new Calgary and area at that time, because we were different areas of child welfare began to open behavioral assessment centers uh, in the communities. And so I had an opportunity to go, go and help open the very first one in Alberta, which was in Canyon Meadows. And uh, I lived in with the kids for a year. And then after that became the program coordinator and moved out and moved new people, house parents in. And we did, um, we did behavioral assessments on kids. So we were like the alternative to Hall Home in Woods at that time. So kids would come to us for a community-based assessment. And we did family counseling and worked with the families to try to get them back home, or if not back home into um, the least restrictive housing opportunity we could. And it wasn't perfect by any means. And um, a lot of the practices that we used back then are really outdated. I still am in touch with some of those kids who are like in their 40s and one is actually in his early 50s now <laughs> but once a year um, we're in touch so it's they were really uh, yeah really tough kids and the tougher the better I always really I don't know I always gravitated to the really um, high-risk kids I, I, 
I just, I just love them just a little bit more. <laughs> I, I never admitted that, of course, to the kids, but I always just went a little bit further and spent a little bit more time and took a lot more risks myself with those kids to try and keep them where they, where they needed to be to get the help they needed. So, so was that a, you liked a really good challenge or was that just the core of like, that you really believed that these kids could be restored? It was both. It was both. I, I honestly, it was both. I did like the challenge. I won't deny that. I, I was, I was feisty back then. <laughs> was? Not too much now. Yeah. I don't know why we're talking in the past. Okay. <laughs> uh, nothing scared me. Nothing scared me then. And so I took a lot of risks. As I said, I broke a lot of rules. I just, you know, I just knew that a lot of the things that we were doing weren't, weren't productive. A lot of the things that I wasn't supposed to do, I knew were needed. So things like the kid that is now, he's turning 50 this year, was a kid that had been at 15. He came into the group home, um, having been in 18 foster homes. He was a native child and he, well, he had a horrendous background, but he was really, really had huge attachment problems. So we just, we connected right off the, actually, which was kind of, um, interesting because I thought, what are they talking about attachment issues? I soon learned um, as he got more comfortable. But I just, I just did everything I could to get that kid to attach. And clearly, it worked because I still hear from him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like this is what's crazy. I, this is what comes to mind, Patty. Like, how old would he have been? Oh, him. He was fifteen, and I was twenty-one. So fifteen years old. He's been in eighteen foster homes yeah no wonder he has attachment issues i would have some attachment issues too like exactly exactly like no surprise right and i remember the first the first few months we were open because we were the first we were the pilot for behavioral assessment centers and we opened the second one in alberta as well in in marlboro for younger kids this was for pre-adolescent and adolescents in canyon meadows and every single day Someone from the ministry would call us every single morning at nine o'clock. They would call and they would say, how many kids do you have in beds? It was a six bed home. And, um, and what are their names? And we have telemetry. And I was almost always the one to answer the phone because staff didn't, we hardly had any staff. I had, was lucky if I had one staff come in part of the day. So I was there alone in the mornings and I'd get them all off to school and, and I'd answer the phone at nine o'clock and they'd say this. Finally, after two or three weeks of this, I said, do you mind me asking you, why do you ask this every single day? You know, I have six kids. We've had six kids from the beginning. We've got the same six kids. What do you mean? And they said, well, we're asking because we want to know if they ran away. And I said, ran away? Why would they run away? What are you talking about? We're, we're good to them. We, we, we're getting along just fine why would they run away it had never occurred to me until that time that they might run away and it never occurred to my staff either like we just and as soon as it did they started running away because we knew it was a possibility and we started talking about it it goes a lot to to what what your expectations are of people right mm-hmm. wow so I did that for a long time I I, um, I lived in for a year I became program coordinator for that particular group home. I then became a program coordinator for our treatment homes and our assessment homes and oversaw them because we had long-term treatment homes as well. And then I became a director with the agency and uh, eventually, and um, our founder left to do other things. And um, three of us bought the the homes from him uh, with great difficulty and big loans and, and um, determined to, to keep uh, going. And um, I stayed with them for, stayed with that agency for uh, almost 28 years before it finally was merged with Aspen. And that's where, where Aspen came in. Okay. In the meantime, I had all three, my three of my kids when I was uh, working there. Our oldest Carrie Ann will be uh, 35 this year. Our twins, uh, Alyssa and Stacy. Uh, came three three years after her, three and a half years. Yeah, I took uh, with Kiriana, I took three months maternity leave <laughs> and was back at it. Um, 
And with the twins, I had, I had more like six, six months. Yeah. So I felt lucky to have that. We were in a really fortunate position though, because Brian worked for the post office. So he was a letter carrier. So he'd go in really early to do his route and he'd be home sometimes 11 o'clock in the morning. I'd go to work at 9 30, 10 o'clock in the morning. And so we would have someone, my sister or whoever we had, one of my staff at one time for years was only part-time. And so she took care of the kids in the morning. So we'd have someone for a maximum of three hours come into our home and take care of the kids. And then we did this whole handoff routine. The kids could come to work with me sometimes if, uh, if the kids I was working with weren't terribly volatile at the time. They learned a lot about, about you know, the challenges that other kids have through that. It wasn't a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I was a foster parent at 19, by the way. Brian and I became foster parents when the kids started to get older as well. People on the podcast aren't going to be able to see this, but we're totally shaking our heads over here. Like, yeah, like just like this smoke. is wild. <laughs> yeah, I had I had a 15-year-old boy was my first foster child and I was 19. They didn't bother to ask how old I was. There was no paperwork. There was no criminal record check. There was no child abuse registry check. They needed people so badly in the 70s that they took anyone. Wow. Okay. As I listen to you list off some of the, and I know you don't do this. This this is why we kind of wanted to get you on here because you don't typically tell people kind of what you've been up to in your life because you've definitely said several things that have been a surprise to me, but it it speaks a great deal to the resilience of, uh, of really your calling to love kids and specifically kids who experience unique challenges. And um, I know, I know that's been the case, you know, since I've met you and, and you haven't even gotten to the point where you, you know, worked for the city of Chestermere and then, and then went on to continue with, with Synergy and getting Synergy started, which is a nonprofit that you're now still, still involved with that cares for kids in our, in our city. What do you tell a young woman, we'll say a young woman who's starting out and, and is passionate about caring for, for kids of, various different degrees of challenges how do you encourage them you know this is your life but how do you what do you say to them i i tell them to talk to people like me not so much me but people like me (laughs) (laughs) to to really to really learn about what what it's like the toll it takes on you to be sure that that you're ready for that i tell them to slow down a little bit and consider um, taking more time for themselves before they jump in to have to have a young adulthood to um, even if it's only for a few years um, before they get into such serious work that really is all encompassing is a way of life it's not a job at all it's it's a way of life and if you do you probably won't last very long it's just uh, it's it's something that I think needs to be taken real much more seriously than I took it and I wish that I'd had someone to talk to me I probably wouldn't have listened but I at least would have (laughs) would have considered what they had to say and maybe at various points would have been a little more careful it's very easy to give people advice that we would not have taken Mm -hmm. ourselves yeah that's right well that's why I tell them to talk to somebody else (laughs) I could refer them to all kinds of people, but don't talk to me about it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. (laughs) (laughs) It's so interesting that you'd say that because I definitely catch myself doing that very same thing. Well, and I would say too, like one of the things that I think I just heard you say, you know, when you're talking to somebody young who's just starting out is in a sense, enjoy some of your young life before your heart gets broken and you're compelled to do something about it. Absolutely. And I, I think that's the nature of a calling, you know, like in, in the church, we, you know, we talk about it, like part of finding your, finding your calling is, you know, where does your great sadness meet God's great gladness? What are the things that break your heart that, that God cares significantly about? And, and I, I most definitely think that, you know, as I listen to your, your timeline, I think this is how you became who you were. And, you clearly always had 
the resilience that, that we see still today. I'm sure you had moments, just like we all do, where we just go, oh my, can I take on any, even one more story, challenging story? Would you have something like that? Do you think of that? Was there a period of time in your life where you went, oh, this is just too much? You know, to be, to be completely honest, I, that's pretty recent for me. I, I really didn't until a few years ago. I never, I always thought it was, it was an insult to call someone naive. And I always hated it when someone <laughs> said that to me about anything. But I was blissfully naive forever. And I just, you know, once I, once I got started, I just kept going. And I just really just believed, always believed that things could get better for the kids and the families that, that I was walking with and that um, if I couldn't help them, I could find the right resource for them. And I really just believed that for a long time. I thought, okay, I'm going to get caught up one of these days and things are, things are going to, I'm going to have some time for myself. I thought that for years and years and years, I really thought that up until just a few years ago. I thought eventually I'm not going to have to work as hard. Yeah, that's not the way it works. You just keep going because there's always there's always something that can be better that you can that you can help with. And so it's it's a lifelong challenge. I think sometimes we pursue, especially when you pursue a specific area of people care, development care, you know, youth with specific challenges or or integration for immigrants and some of those kind of things. I think when we do that so often, I know this is the case for me. I do it so often that some of the root things that I got started off, sometimes what so intuitively comes so normal, naturally to me, I assume other people understand. And, and there's mm-hmm. these moments, right, yeah, where, you, yep. where you say an assumption, something that you have lived your whole life towards, and you're assuming everybody in the room gets it. And, the, and there's these moments where you just realize, oh, we are so much, we have so much to learn still as people. And I'm realizing more and more that it's like, no, we actually do need to say these, what, what we've come to believe is these very, very basic things are not so basic to everybody. That's right. Anyway, it's just one of those things that kind of came to mind for me that it's like, I'm certain you've had moments where it's like, if you're 18 or sorry, 19 years old and you're a foster parent already, there is something rooted in you about caring for the broken and not like what's interesting. This is what's interesting. Maybe you've, I'm sure you've observed this. So you find yourself working and caring for kids who society and culture would probably deem as deviant, not the victims. And you discover in those kids that they are victims. I always saw them that way. I didn't have to discover it. I just, I really identified with what you said, just naturally, that's the way I saw them. And I just, I have so much more patience for folks now that struggle with social activism and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. They didn't, they didn't, it didn't come naturally to them. It's just not part of their DNA. And they have to learn it all. They have to change their perceptions. It, that's huge work. I have way more compassion, way more patience for them. In the church, we, we, there's some new authors that are talking about the levels of spiritual growth. And so there's the, this one author that we're listening to, he talks about it in four ways. And I actually think this doesn't have to be just about spiritual growth. Yeah. This can be growth. So that's why I'm sharing it. Not because not I want to throw in something churchy here, but it's like, that, that actually, so the four stages are simplicity, complexity, perplexity, like being perplexed, and then harmony. And that if we see it like this, that it's like, so simplicity is like, in the church, we were talking about like simplicity is like, you're handed this religion, you're handed this, like, here's what you believe, this is what we believe, and this is it. And at some point, at some point, it turns into you know, religion, if we know, we know it, we hand religion to kids, and at some point, it turns into something very complex, very rule-based, very here's how you fit in, very like 
a lot of words actually that I really hate, the, the standards that we set on people to fit in and how hard people have to work to fit in. And then, and then, and the reality is that some stay their whole life in a state of simplicity and complexity. So even when we take racism or whatever, we put that on top of it. We go, yep, some people are handed racist ideas they, and, they, and they keep them. They, they, and, and, and even they add complex rules around how they keep them and why they keep them and all those kind of things. And in, in the spiritual growth realm, what we would say is, is like, even in the church, this is one of the things I want Lakeridge to be about, what I want to be about is I want to be the kind of place that can handle the perplexed. And the perplexed is this moment, you know, inside the church where it's like, where you suddenly the religion you were given, the rules of fitting into the church suddenly aren't aligning with what you, what you really believe might be true about God. And that God is this all encompassing love. He's far more interested in, than in inclusion than he is about exclusion this kind of stuff and hopefully making its way into harmony you know we don't have very many harmony people in our world right now that can go i've been through those other three stages and i can inform you and help you to maybe in a more peaceful manner more productive manner make your way through these other stages and and i i just heard you say that that actually because only a person in a state of harmony can look at a bigot or some racist person and go, oh, you're, you've been handed something that just isn't true. Yeah. And you, there is a way yeah. forward here. You, you know, it, like there is a, something better. So, so here's, here's what this all brings me to. We have some things happening in our city right now. So I want to get real practical, like what, what we're up to these days. So to be honest with you, I think some light has been shed on, on some dark corners of our city. And, and I think that not just the pandemic, but I think pre, pre-pandemic too, we were starting to see signs that, that maybe we have some systemic issues in our city, in particular around bullying. And we have some evidence to, to to proof out that that's been happening. Not, not just among our kids, because I think sometimes we always talk about bullying like mm-hmm. it's a kid's issue. A- ab- absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It's not just kids. Yeah. And so <laughs> some really hard things have happened in our city. We had a student, you know, essentially t- take, her, take her own life um, and, and name actually that she, she had been harmed by, by some bullying thing. This broke your heart. You've told me that it broke your heart and it broke a lot of our hearts. It broke mine mm-hmm. for sure. What I found was fascinating about you is that, and I, we're hearing it today in your storytelling was that your solution to anti-bullying, your, 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 intu, your intuitive solution, which we're working now to proof out so that we can come up with a plan, right? It was we really need to care for the bullies. Can you tell us more about what is it just your story or what do you know here that we don't know (laughs) because it it the moment you asked and you you brought some pretty powerhouse people together pretty quickly to get on a zoom call and talk about it and you managed to get some of those powerhouse people to tell the whole zoom call that they were bullies when they were kids and that they still could be if they let, right? Like you managed to actually even get me to say, yeah, I was a bully. Tell us a little bit about this passion area and kind of what's going on. What are you thinking? Well, I, I mean, first, first of all, I, I don't believe there there's anyone on this earth that can honestly look you in the eye and say that they didn't at some point bully someone, depending on your definition of bullying, but if we were, if we're all really honest with ourselves, we've all done things that were not just, were, were repeated and were um, meant to hurt. And um, it might've been as a very small child. It might've been as an adult. It might've been somewhere in between, but uh, we've all done it. And we may not remember it even. I don't like it when people, <laughs> it's funny I'm saying that because I don't like to hear people say that because 
when a lot of times when people say that they're just minimizing it. I don't mean it in that way. I mean, it. it's part of learning as you grow up um, what not to do. If when we're growing up, there isn't someone there, there aren't multiple people there to reframe that for us and to help us to learn another way of relating to other people, then we're going to keep doing what works for us, particularly if we're a person, whether that be a young person or an adult who is not, is, is feeling the feeling a lack of power in their life, a lack of control over their life, feeling like they're unheard and unseen, feeling unsupported, feeling lonely. That's the beginning of the list could be a lot of things that they're feeling. Okay. So wait a second. So you're describing that as what's happening in a bully. That's what's happening in everyone (laughs) to some extent, especially right now during the pandemic. For some people, how equality comes naturally to some people and it doesn't to others. It also, the way we treat people comes naturally to some people and not to others. Some of it just part of who we are. The rest of it is part of who those around us help us to become. It's not all about the parents. Sometimes it has nothing to do with the parents. And then the next place they go is it must be that school, must be the teachers in that school. They're not doing their job. No, it's not. It's the whole community. I really, really, really believe that it takes a village. Kids are, I mean, kids go away to school. They go away to play with peers. They, they're, they're subjected to different environments um, through their, their, friends, their friends' homes, through uh, the work they do, the volunteer opportunities they have, all kinds of things. They learn, they emulate behaviors. Some of those, if they're not checked early on, then carry on into adulthood. I'm not saying that we need to be the bully police because you can't, it's, it's impossible for us to catch every little nuance that's going on with people. But I think what we can do is to change the way we look at bullies. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe they're not a bully. Maybe they just, maybe they need some help with something. Let's figure that out. That's the first step. Let's figure out how we can help them get the attention that they need without acting it out and taking it out on someone else because they feel they feel insecure. So, I'm a strong believer in restorative justice. I've watched I've watched them I've been part of and been fortunate to be part of some really powerful restorative justice opportunities that have made a really big difference in kids lives and it doesn't just make a change in the aggressor's life it makes a change in their life it makes a change in their family's life it makes a change in their siblings and it makes a change for those that they aggress against for every bully that we are able to walk beside learn about, understand, support, love, and get the resources they need to to feel better about themselves, that's at least one less person that's going to get bullied, if not many, many more. So for those people who are really, really stuck on the idea that you need to punish the bully, and that's the way to deal with this, I say, yes, you need to hold them accountable. They need to know what they've done and how the harm it's caused. They need to understand that. That's different than punishing them. And then then they need to understand what they need to stop doing that. And if if people can't, I know a lot of people get, get really stuck on, well, why should we take the time and the resources to help them when we've got a victim over here that needs the help? Well, we're not going to ignore the victim. We need to help and support them just like we always would, and actually more than we do. We need to, we need to help them both, though. And if if you're one of those people who thinks, well, it's all about the victim, they're both victims. They're both victims. If it's going to make things better for potential victims, how can you argue with it? Well, I think, too, like you've named a few things, like, um, because I, I, well, I know this about you, that this isn't just about starting a program. Like, Mm -mm. like programs maybe give us some kind of structure so that kind of people know 
what they can do and what they, you know, what we need to be about as a, as a program uh, coordinator. But this is really about relationship. Like when I, when I look at the people that you've, and I, I've only known you in this last decade, when I look at the people that you've hired over the years, highly relational people who have demonstrated a capacity to, to see through the, the first mask, I'll just put it that way, that they, that they have a capacity to see past the exterior thing that's being put on to see whatever, what's happening beyond that. So whether that's a bully who's, you know, giving some tough exterior that they've got it all figured out or whatever, or honestly, some of the people you've hired are really great at empowering victims to speak. What I mean by that is not just that you've hired good people, but that you, that I I have seen in you that 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 is a that is a value that relationship and being able able to care for people even when others don't know how to or don't want to in the church and 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 hopefully in the world too we talk about justice quite a bit and and I I I, I have learned in this last year that I'm far more of an ad, advocate than I have led on <laughs> and one of the words or the ways that we describe justice is that justice means to make right it's actually how god sees it just god's justice is to make right and what's right. so interesting is that our culture has mostly gone towards that that is a punitive thing so mm -hmm. it's like yeah. justice means you get punished and then justice served as long as you get punished to the extent that everybody wants you to be punished <laughs> mm -hmm. then yep. justice is served somehow but, but what's fascinating is my observation in my years of working with teenagers and adults is that that, that hasn't made it right for people. Even, you know, I watch people, you know, watch court cases and you watch them out on the courthouse steps after, the, you know, the, the perpetrator or whatever has been convicted and they go, justice was served today or justice was not served today. Mm -hmm. And then they all go home and eventually they realize that they're not okay that actually somebody being punished for their actions doesn't make it right yet. That there seems to be something still needs to be healed. And so I, I think for me, that's a little bit of what I think about when I think about the way you're talking about it. I guess all I wanna say is, you know, as we kind of get ready to wrap it up here, you, I wanna be just like you when I grow up. That's what I wanna say, really. <laughs> me too, <laughs> me too. <laughs> but, I clearly, I'm looking back and I'm thinking, I started too late already. <laughs> I needed to start at 19. Right. But it's like, no, but, she was like a child no. advocating for other children. So I, I, I know. Jeez. I do have a question for both of you though. I don't think people realize if you're not involved in the community or a part of any of the organizations, like it's super fascinating how you've both been able to gather organizations and people together to create this village who actually is trying to care for our city. Can you just talk about how you help gather those people and also how do you help other people see? Because you were gifted with this perspective to see past the masks and see past the behavior. But how do you help other people to understand that? Evan, Evan just said the key and that's relationship. Having relationship with them, no matter how different they are from you. Finding, a, finding something in common and finding the things that are different and learning, learning about each other and just, just having those conversations and not, um, not uh, I mean, some of those folks, we have radically different views on some things, but I think they're amazing people. And I think just, just ex accepting them for being those amazing people, even, even though they're so different, something about that makes people want to reciprocate it's really powerful to have to have people come together from different backgrounds and with different beliefs and stuff i mean it's just we all learn so much and i think it's what keeps us keeps us going i, I would add like i think for me i i think building healthy relationships with people in our community is really important and i would say that part of building healthy relationships with people is about finding out what they care about and what they're good at. I have found that a lot of people are gifted in a lot of different areas and they just don't know how to use those sometimes those gifts 
to really make a difference. And so sometimes it's like, for me, like gathering people together, it, it probably is one of the most exciting things and fun things is going, I can see this in you. I don't know if you can see it or not, but I can see this gift in you. And hey, how about you join us? Well, we, and because I think our group can do something really great. And I, and I, I have both been the, you know, the instigator in that and also the recipient of that. Mm -hmm. I I guess I just want to say, (laughs) but I I do think using some of your, your story and your wisdom to continue to care and mentor some of these leaders is, is maybe um, something we could all use more of. I know, I know your wisdom has been super helpful and to, to me. And I, I would actually say like, one of the interesting things as I got to meet you and get to know you a little bit was that you are, you are very resilient at, at sticking with things. And uh, I think, I think that is like a skill mm-hmm. and just maybe something that's instilled in us by God or <laughs> I don't know, but you, you've been very, very good at, at just sticking with it, whatever it might be. And uh, yeah, you're clearly one of these people who just, oh, if it didn't work, we'll just figure out a different way to make that work. So. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. That's, that's one of my, my fam- one of my famous sayings if you ask my staff as well, we've always worked it out before. Yeah. So we'll work it out again. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we will. And yeah, so, yeah, t- yeah, there are days for sure. There are days that I think, uh, how am I ever, how am I ever going to work this out? But the next day, get a good sleep. Let's get at it. Yeah. 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 Hey, well, I'm looking forward to continuing to work on this this kind of anti-bullying kind of new project as we try to figure out some stuff. And I, I, I am actually really hopeful that it'll make a difference. And I actually really do think it's a significant need in our city. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, yeah, I'm committed to helping make it happen. Thank you. Great. Yes, thank you. You are most welcome. Thank you very much. Okay. Perfect. Thanks, Patty. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, you, you too. too. Bye. 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 Hey, thanks for joining us. We'd love if you take a moment to rate, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, thanks for listening.